Welcome to Patently Obvious, the podcast where we discuss seminal cases in intellectual property law with the attorneys that litigated them. I'm Alex Delaney. And I'm Michael Gnuish. The point of this podcast, the way we conceived it, was to help demystify intellectual property law practice and give students a primer on the types of opportunities available to them if they chose to go into this field. Today we are discussing the two live crew case, which resolves around the fair use exemption for copyright infringement. Michael, I remember you really loving this case when we discussed it in class. Who were the parties and what were they arguing about? The case is called Campbell v. Akafro's Music and was a 1994 Supreme Court case. Luke Campbell, also known as Uncle Luke, is a rapper out of Florida. In the 80s, he joined and then managed a rap group called Two Life Crew, who were very successful back in the day. In 1989, Two Life Crew put out an album called As Nasty As They Want to Be. They wanted a parody, Roy Orbison's Oh Pretty Woman, which was owned by music company Akafro's Music. They asked for a license, were turned down, but decided to record it anyway. Akafro's sued them for copyright infringement. So we have a clip of both of the songs. Here is Roy Orbison's Oh Pretty Woman. And here is Two Live Crew's Pretty Woman. really similar to me. So how did Two Live Crew's attorney go about arguing this case? If Campbell's Pretty Woman was interpreted as a parody of Oh Pretty Woman, then Two Live Crew would have a strong case that their song fell within the fair use exemption for copyright infringement. The whole case really turned on proving that point. I interviewed attorney Bruce Rogo, who represented Luther Campbell before the Supreme Court. Actually, Luther Campbell first approached Mr. Rogo about the obscenity aspect of that same album, As Nasty As They Want to Be. In 1992, in the case Luke Records v. Navarro, the 11th Circuit held for Luther Campbell because they said something with artistic value cannot be obscene per se. Then, when he was sued by Akafros, Luther Campbell pulled Mr. Rogo back into it. Mr. Rogo says that this was his first copyright case ever. Mr. Rogo has had a really interesting career, so what is his background exactly? Bruce Rogo is an incredibly impressive attorney. He argued over 450 criminal and civil cases in federal and state court, including 11 cases before the Supreme Court. He started off representing civil rights workers in Mississippi, Alabama, and Louisiana in 1964. He has represented F. Lee Bailey, been lead counsel in the multi-district litigation bank overdraft cases consolidated in the Southern District of Florida, resulting in over a billion dollars in settlement awards. And he represented the Cuban Museum against the city of Miami's attempt to evict the museum for its artists' political views. This list is by no means exhaustive, but it does give you a flavor of how diverse and interesting his career has been. Okay, I'm excited. Let's go ahead and hear your full interview with Mr. Rogo. Uh, where you talk about Two Life Crew, the law generally, what he loves about IP, and his advice for young law students. Good morning, Mr. Rogo, and thank you for joining us. The first question we have is, 
You have an expertise in a vast array of legal fields. You've taught civil procedure, criminal law, and constitutional law, and have litigated all sorts of legal matters, from intellectual property to criminal and business law. What, in your mind, differentiates IP litigation from its other forms? Well, it's so broad. There are so many areas that that fall within intellectual property uh, that it's far different, really, from, I think, almost every other kind of law. Uh, And, you know, you've got art, you've got literature, you've got music, you've got engineering, you've got all kinds of creative things that can be done in this world. And all of those things are subject to intellectual property legal issues. So, really, if you're looking for a kind of law practice, that deals with a wide range of possible things from which you will learn. And that's the important thing, I think. Intellectual property probably is it. I mean, you can read the Constitution. It's the same thing over and over. But every book is different and, and, and every painting is different. Every musical work is, is different. Or maybe they're not so different, actually. There's, all, there's so much that, that obviously uh, is taken from one to the other. But the bottom line is, is it's intellectually stimulating. So calling it intellectual intellectual property really reflects uh, a special area of, of the law. So you feel it's especially colorful and dynamic. Yes, although I don't do a lot of it. I mean, I never did any of it until this case. I didn't even know where the, where the copyright statute was, you know, that I knew because he came to me for First Amendment issues. I wouldn't have gotten involved had it not been for the two live crew obscenity aspect. Let me ask you about that. How did you come to represent Luther Campbell and how did the case turn from obscenity to copyright? Just as we're talking and I'm looking at where we are, it reminded me that you are looking at the place in which it all started because he came here to my office here in my house uh, and I had no idea who he was. A former student of mine from the University of Miami called me and said, would would you be willing to see Two Live Crew? And I said, Alan, because I knew he did entertainment work, I said, Alan, are you doing immigration work now? I thought Two Live Crew were people who had survived the raft trip from Haiti or Cuba. This is during that time when people were rafting to the United States. He said, no, 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 they're a rap group. I said, well, what's a rap group? And so he he told me and I said, well, bring him up. And Luther Campbell came up and we sat right here where, where you're looking at my room now. And uh, I liked him right away. He brought me a couple of, of uh, tapes, I think. I don't think they were, maybe they were CDs. And we talked and I, I played one and I read the somebody had transcribed the words, somebody from a very conservative organization, so I could see the words. And he said, and what was happening was the governor had started something where they wanted to crack down on him. And this was the time when when, uh, uh, there was a lot of intensity about young people being exposed to bad words. And he said, do you think we can win? And I said, I think we can win, Luther, but even if we lose, you'll win. And he said, what kind of jive white man talk is that? Uh, I said, because if the government says people can't listen to it, everybody's going to want to listen to it. And later on, when Tung Aram gave him a $5 million check for the distribution rights for Atlantic Records, he turned to me and he said, now I know what you meant when you said, even if I lose, I'll win. And so that's how it all started right here. So that that's the beginning of it. I had no idea. I didn't know about rap. I didn't know uh, about any of this genre of, uh, of music. 
But I liked him right away. We, we hit it off right away. And then I came up with the idea of suing first and filing a declaratory judgment action to declare that the record was not obscene. And so that, that then took us off on this journey of, of uh, Campbell and myself. I read in an article that your wife was not a fan of the group's music, but eventually warmed to the members. You've represented some controversial figures, if I may say so, before and since this case. How does that impact your litigation strategy, and what is your relationship like with the ideas and people that you represent? You know, it, it the people, of course, I like I like to enjoy the people, uh, and some of them are strange people and have different kinds of values than I have. But I always look for the positive in the people, and so uh, and generally it's there. I mean, the, the only group, by the way, the only people I would never represent were the tobacco people. The the tobacco cases to me the tobacco companies to me are stone cold killers and there is no defense i really understand why it's a legal product you know i mean it kills so many more people than the coronavirus that that it makes no sense to me but in any event so you look for the best in people and in these people i you know i i found good things and i certainly found interesting good things in luther my wife is very good with people. And so she didn't really meet Luther Campbell and the rest of Two Live Crew until they came again to this house uh, before the Sunday before, Mo- or, or the weekend before Mother's Day, I think. And we were going to go to trial, and everybody came, and we had dinner and all that, and she saw that, that there's a difference between the public persona and the private persona. So, But how I managed to find my way into all these people, uh, I don't know. It uh, that luckily for me, they presented good issues. They're not they're not people who are who are either in it just for the money or in you know they're not criminals uh, in the way that the state sometimes tried to make people out to be. So it's been a pleasure representing all of these people. So that leads into my next question: When the case moved from obscenity to copyright, the Sixth Circuit argued that commerciality was the most important factor for fair use. Supreme Court, however, held that transformation was the most important factor. Where did that theory come from? Was that something that you came up with or was that something that the court came up with on their own? No, it was there because Laval's article had been written. I mean, remember, I'm starting fresh. I had no idea about this. Alan Turk had handled the case in Nashville. I mean, Luther had come to me at the beginning, and we had another issue, uh, too, another copyright thing that that he didn't make any effort to get the permission to use. And so I told him, I said, try to get permission, okay? I mean, I listen, I didn't think that this was on as clean as they want to be. So this came after. After the obscenity case, I remember that that he he did as clean as they want to be as a sequel uh, to as what as nasty as they want to be. Anyway, so and of course I loved Pretty Woman. I mean there there could not be a better song, and I still laugh now every time we're out somewhere and they play Pretty Woman, and my wife and I dance to Pretty Woman. I say to Jacqueline, I said we're the only people who've ever danced to the song that. 
I argued in the floor, in the U.S. Supreme Court. And uh, so I thought this song was stupid. I mean, really, you know, hairy woman walking down the street. Uh, what is this? But you got to understand the whole Campbell. It, you, you've got to go back a little bit. Campbell was bused to Miami Beach High School, which uh, at that time was an all white high school. And uh, he was bused from Liberty City. Uh, he was one of the few black uh, students that were there. And of course, the, the interesting coincidence is I had graduated from Miami Beach High School in 1957, you know, 40 years before, whatever it was. So I felt a special affinity for him. And he told me, he said, when he got there, he had no idea that white people lived like this on Miami Beach. It was a very kind of high-end uh, existence for most people. And he uh, he became a, a kind of a, a DJ for dances and things like that. And, and that's how he kind of got started. So, so he had no idea. He made this music. They had a good time. He used to use, in, in Liberty City, he told me he used to use a garbage can, you know, as a musical instrument uh, to back up the stuff that he was doing. And so he, the, the music, it was, it was crazy. I mean, it was just the words, the language, all of that. But this was the genre that, that he was very good at. And they put together the group. So they were not thinking about copyright law. I mean, I told him, I said, see if you can get permission. And they couldn't get permission, and that was it. And so he said, I'm doing it anyway. I mean, I couldn't tell him not to do it. And he was not one who was interested in all the nuances of copyright law, 17107. You know, this was not the kind of thing that he was interested in. And he said, I'm doing it. And we're putting it on clean as they want to be. And then they got sued. Uh, and and the reason, I think, was was that Acuff Rose didn't like the fact that they had all the obscenity litigation. So, so the copyright stuff came after he had created this furor with regard to obscenity. And, and that's why they said no. Uh, they thought it was, it was declassé, which obviously it was compared to Pretty Woman. And uh, and then Alan handled it and won in the district court, uh, summary judgment in the district court, lost it in the Sixth Circuit, which is a tough circuit. And then, of course, what happened was, was that so much had happened with Two Live Crew. They'd become so well known. I think that added to the fact that the court was interested in taking it. You know, the court is is not immune to what's happening in the public world. And so that's how it got to the Supreme Court. And on the way, I mean, the only the only argument we could make was was that it was it was a parody. It was making fun of the uh, original. And so Laval and the transformative work kind of came into play there. Was it really transformative in that way? I thought the strongest argument was it certainly did would not have any effect on the original. I mean, that to me was clear. Nobody, nobody was going to say, should I buy Roy Orbison or should I buy two live crew? Pursuant to that point, the Supreme Court held that Mr. Campbell had to satisfy a strange and interesting standard on remand. It was clear that his Oh Pretty Woman would not stunt the sales of Roy Orbison's, but the court wanted him to show that his Oh Pretty Woman would not stunt the sales of a potential rap version that Roy Orbison would want to make. How did he go about answering that question on remand? 
Well, remember, two things happened. On, on remand, all the Sixth Circuit did was send it back to the district court. Uh, and then the case got settled in the district court. Acuff Rose had enough. And Luke, by then, had filed for bankruptcy. Uh, so the, all these millions of dollars that he had, had had gone awry. He opened a club on Miami Beach uh, that, that didn't do well. And before he knew it, he was in bankruptcy. And Joe Weinberger, who was his general counsel, a very nice guy, came from family with some money. Uh, he ended up buying the two live crew rights in bankruptcy. Uh, and he had loaned Luke a lot of money, maybe half a million dollars or so. Luke never forgave him for uh, for now being, in effect, two live crew. But but so there was no nothing really to deal with afterwards. It it just it just went along. There was a stipulation. There was a small amount that that Acuff Rose paid, uh, as I recall. Uh, just for whatever the costs and stuff were, and then the case was over. So it stands on its own. There's been nothing further in that in that area, but it certainly made made uh, Luther a, a hero, really, in the in the rap music world. But he already was a hero through the obscenity litigation. I have a question about copyright doctrine in general. Copyright law purports to balance between the First Amendment, free speech, I can write whatever book I want, and protecting the innovation of authors. Do you think it does a good job at balancing between those two things? It, it has the potential, obviously, to stifle uh, innovation. And so if someone who is cautious uh, may very well think, well, I better be careful before I do this. Uh, so so that, to me, is one of the difficulties with it. What happens when a client comes in and says, this is what I want to do, and you say, listen, you know, this could be a problem. Uh, in fact, the point you're making is, is important because one one of the issues in the Supreme Court was how broad this could be uh, and how it could affect people. The capital steps, for example. Uh, have you heard the capital steps? Are you familiar with their work? Well, they they came in as amicus curiae, and I had a hard time with them. They wanted to go beyond where I needed to go. All I needed to go was to parody and win the case. They wanted some broad kind of, uh, of decision that would allow them because they take all this popular music and they put new words to it and it's great and they're very talented uh, so you know my view was I want to win this case but I had fights with them and their lawyer I'm not to say fights in a bad way but intellectual fights with it and I understood where they were coming from the Harvard Lampoon also came in uh, on our side as amicus curiae you know Weird Al Yankovic uh, gets permission to use the, the music that he that he uses. But I think it underscores the fact that it has a chilling effect. I mean, copyright law does have a chilling effect on creation. Uh, and that's the hard line. And that's why this case just opened the door to the parody situation, uh, which is a strange thing, by the way, parody. You know, it's not the usual kind of, kind of creativity. Uh, although now in the corona stuff, I mean, I just saw something the other day uh, about, uh, what is it, Sandman, Sandman, play me, but it's Fauci, Fauci. They're using, I don't know if, if this is a, it's, it's not a parody. Uh, maybe you could
could call it a parody. But you see what happens in these situations. I mean, so so much humor out of the coronavirus situation is tapping into other other copyright materials. Are people going to sue? I don't. I don't think so. But that's the problem. It, it can stifle creativity. That, that's why, really, I, I always thought, you know, the bottom line is when, when Louisa May Alcott got her, got her copyright for Little Women, which ended up being extended like for 56 years, uh, it, it was all about the money. I mean, it was her pride, and it was, and she she kept the copyright. She didn't give it to the publisher, uh, but it was a big thing. But it was about the money and control. So once you're once you're thinking on those lines, you want to protect your economic interests and you want to protect your intellectual interests. And the next person, you can take umbrage at them trying to make use of it. And what about the fair use aspect of copyright law? Do you think this case informs? just parody? Or do you think its ideas can be extrapolated to all copyright cases? You know, to some extent, it informs all of fair use, but it's really limited to parody. I mean, I had to win the case. And and so I don't need to win it on the broadest possible ground. Parody was enough. And and that's it. Although, is it really a parody? I mean, you know, it's a parody in a strange way when you read and the and the opinion has the lyrics uh, to it. You know, they printed the lyrics as part of the opinion, as appendix to the opinion. But the trouble is, is that what is the heart of it? The heart of it is the guitar riff, is the pretty woman part. After that, it makes no difference what you hear. Once you hear that, you know you've got pretty woman. Uh, and so that really wasn't a parody, that part, by putting together the rest of the stuff, the words, you know, all that kind of comment on on, on white prostitutes or black, pro- whatever it was. It, to me, it, it was, I don't want to say it was made up stuff, but it, it, it was a reach. I mean, when you heard that song, if you go, if you listen to it, in fact, I think it's it's on on it. You know, I've got the gold record, by the way, of uh, of that, and uh, and I think the minute you hear it, you say, "Pretty woman." And then, of course, you hear the rest of it. So I think it opened the door a little bit. Uh, and but there's always tension in this area. Always tension. I was recently talking to a patent lawyer who told me that practicing. Copyright law can be boring because a lot of the laws have already been decided. There isn't a lot of novelty. Whereas in patent law, you're dealing with emerging technologies or pharmaceuticals. So there's a lot of excitement when you practice. But you mentioned earlier that you think copyright law can be exciting and rewarding. And I think that you have terrific clients because the people who write books, the people who create music, uh, artists, these are interesting people. And, you know, to me, I mean, the most exciting part about being a lawyer is how much you learn. Uh, I I wouldn't be doing this for 55, almost 56 years now if, if I didn't feel like I was getting more out of it than I am giving. I mean, like this, this was a great example. What did did I know about it? Did I know about Grandmaster Flash? I had no idea who Grandmaster Flash was. Henry Louis Gates. I bring Henry Louis Gates down as an expert in the obscenity trials. What? What? Where does this come from? This is not anything that that I had planned on and and thought about. This is what I'm going to do. But this area teaches you so much, introduces you to so many interesting people and concepts and thoughts. And so, in the in the pure copyright area. <coughs> 
that is one of the great attractions that your clients are going to be interesting people. What advice would you give to a younger Bruce Rogo, someone who's uh, in law school and is about to embark on his journey in the practice? What pieces of counsel can you offer to those students? Well, you know, you, you look at the various areas of law. I mean, it always seemed to me hard. How do you know, uh, unless you're, you've got somebody in your family and so you've kind of had some experience. But for many of us, there was nothing before that kind of led you in one direction. So I think the, the key is, is what, what appeals to you and stimulates you when you take these classes. I always believed in a kind of liberal arts legal education. Not, you know, there's some people who say, I'm going to take real estate. I'm going to take tax. And I don't, I respect that people, you know, enjoy tax law and the, and there's certainly a lot to it. Fine. But, but you have to make your own decision about what challenges you, what finds, what, what, what makes you willing to think about it, you know, at night before you go to bed and, and and wonder, how am I going to do this? How am I going to solve this problem? Because it is problem solving, really. And uh, so I think it's an individual kind of thing about what people like. But so much of our life, uh, well, maybe not so much anymore for as many people as it used to be. So much of our life really is literature, uh, writing, reading, uh, you know, art, those kind of things. And the way uh, the comment that I just made reflects what I think is kind of a... <clears throat> sad comment that that people don't read uh, as much as they do. Now everything is there in, in two, 30 second blips. You know, I look at my phone. I got something today. A friend of mine died uh, in California. It just, boom, shows like, you know, that's it. And that's the news. Uh, there's much more to it, of course, but you're just overwhelmed with all these things. So I think it's an individual thing. What, what do you like? I know people who've come to law school thinking they were going to be a tax lawyer. They end up being a criminal lawyer because they see that as being challenging. Uh, but I just think this area uh, of intellectual property and the sub-area of copyright law uh, allows you, I mean, what's better? You're getting paid to read? You're getting paid to listen to music? I mean, these are this is a good job to have. Uh, and and the fact that it, that it is pretty confined uh, it makes it even a little easier. I mean, I don't know what to do with, with tax law to read like like, you know, a, a tax code that is a thousand pages. Give me a break. I mean, that that's stupid, really. Uh, and they pass all these laws in the past two weeks. I mean, they must be 5,000 pages of laws. They have no idea what they passed. I mean, they just, what's hilarious about this is Andrew Yang turns out to be right. Uh, everybody's going to get $1,000 plus. So he was prescient. And, Ber and Bernie was prescient, too. Now everybody's going to get free health care, at least in this area. So. So if you're in law school, I, my advice is to enjoy it, to listen uh, to what's going on, to read these cases. These cases are interesting cases to read, all of them. Uh, and I think, see what, what moves you. Let me tell you, I can't think of any other job that's better than being a lawyer. Uh, I just think it is so much fun. And uh, and I think that, that what you have to appreciate is that there's so so many players in it that that it's a complicated human dynamic that goes on. You and your client, the judge, the bailiff, uh, 
there's there's a lot of moving parts. Appellate work, by the way, is much easier because in appellate work, the trial record is already done. Uh, so you know what what no, there's not going to be any new witnesses, new evidence, uh, anything like that. And you've got three appellate judges or seven on the state Supreme Court or nine on the U.S. Supreme Court, all of whom have written stuff before. Actually, the U.S. Supreme Court is the easiest, any Supreme Court, because you've you've seen what they've written. Uh, and so you can kind of gear things, which reminds me that, that in this case, uh, Ruth Ginsburg daughter uh, teaches, or maybe she still does, I don't know, copyright law at Columbia. And she wrote a book. And in the book, there was a piece that was very helpful to us. And uh, and they said, oh, you got to include, you got to include this. You got, uh, and I said, well, I am going to include the quote and in just the book, but I'm not going to say uh, whatever her name is, you know, something. In for, and and there were people who wanted me to get up and argue and say, you know, Justice Ginsburg is your daughter wrote. I said, "Are you kidding?" Uh, but but it was that was an interesting kind of thing. And one other footnote to all of this is: every time I went to the Supreme Court after the two live crew case, which by the way, the line I was also involved in the election case, you know, so that obviously was a big crowd. But the line for the two live crew case for the copyright case was much better because it was black, it was white, it was young, it was people with purple hair. It was great, and it was a line long outside and Campbell uh, came and, and he wore a beautiful Armani suit and, and this goes back to the capital steps issue that we had the, the, I've only hung up on a couple of people in my life my mother uh, Alan Dershowitz and the, and the head of capital steps Alan of course I represented Alan later so we'll forget that but but I remember where this happened in the House, too. The, about a week before the argument, the head of Capitol Steps wanted to have a seat. You get five reserved seats. And my three children had seats, Luther Campbell and his administrative assistant. And he said, who has reserved seats? And I told him. He said, I want one of your children's seats. I said, you've got to be kidding. He said, no, because Scalia, I played cards with Scalia, and Scalia knows me. And if Scalia sees me, that will be helpful in the case. I hung up on him. Uh, anyway, so at the oral argument, Luther was there in beautiful Armani suit, uh, and it, they were worried because because what's his name? Who the guy from Hustler? Forget what his name was. Uh, had, yeah, Larry Flint had created a fuss. He'd gotten up when the court came in, pushed himself up from his wheelchair and yelled out an obscenity and the marshals pushed him out in the wheelchair. And so they were worried, I guess, about rap, you know, music and all that. But Luther, of course, is a perfect gentleman. And afterwards, every time uh, Bill Souter, not not the justice, but the guy who was the clerk of the court, would say to me, Bruce, how's my friend, Mr. Campbell? How's my friend, Mr. Campbell? And so so that always pleased me that uh, that that Luther left a mark on the on the court in terms of respect and how he handled himself. So whole thing was great from start to finish. There was one question that I want to answer. You asked me something about how I felt about arguing in the Supreme Court or my first argument, something like that. So you'll get a kick out of this. In my first argument, which was Archer Singer versus Hamlin, extending the right to counsel to misdemeanors. So it was a big case. And and uh, the, the Solicitor General uh, was going to be arguing with me because it was such a big deal. And we're in the elevator coming up from the ground floor to go up to the courtroom floor. And my mother uh, came 
came to the argument. And my mother was standing behind me in the elevator, and she reaches and grabs my hand, and she says to this assembled and August group of lawyers, Brucey's hand is wet, just like it was before his bar mitzvah. So that was how my career started in the Supreme Court. <laughs> do you have time for just one last question, moving on from the uh, study of law to the practice of law? What do you think are the characteristics of a good advocate? And what do you recommend young associates focus on during their first uh, few years of training? The, the most important characteristic, I think, is being honest and assessing the facts and the law that you have and and being honest with your client and being honest with the court uh, because you know you, you you hear the facts and sometimes your client doesn't tell you all of the facts and they develop uh, and then you need to you need to give honest advice about what you think the the outcome might be uh, and why and and with the court acknowledging that that you don't have the strongest argument I mean there there is a fellow named Frederick Bernays Wiener wrote a book called uh, uh, I think it's called uh, The Art of Appellate Advocacy it's, a lo- it's, it's been out for a long time or out of print for a long time but, but one of the things that he talked about that always impressed me when I, when I read it was being willing to acknowledge that the other side has a good argument and the single right answer syndrome is a mistake. You know, I've got the only answer. Because if you've got a court, if it's an honestly arguable case, if it isn't, it isn't, you know. But if you've got an honestly arguable case, if you acknowledge that that the other side has an argument, but your argument is the better argument for these reasons, you gain so much credibility. Uh, and I think that, that that is the single most important thing to be able to be Credible, and sometimes your client gives you a hard time with it. You know, your client doesn't want you to acknowledge the weakness because they don't understand the whole process. One other Supreme Court case that I that I lost, uh, Aquin. It was a it was a truth in lending case, and I won it in the Florida Supreme Court, and it was a mistake. It was like a fluke. How could I win this case? I, it was wrong. You know, I argued. I had an argument, and and I could see the other side. I thought the other side had a much better argument. And they took it to the Supreme Court. And when I got up, well, first of all, I did with Ralph Nader's group, uh, some moot courts. And I started saying, one may wonder what I can say in defense of the Florida Supreme Court opinion. But they went crazy. How can you start like that? How can you show weakness like that? How can you say that? I said, because we're in trouble. This is, we're, we're not on the top side of this. Anyway, they finally talked me out of, of saying that as my start, my opening line. A good opening line is, is important. And uh, so I got up, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, and I said a couple of words, and Sandra O'Connor said, Mr. Rogo, what can you say in defense of the Florida Supreme Court opinion? I thought to myself, if I had said it first, at least it would have disarmed the court a bit, you know, and they would have they would have known. And it always aggravated me that I let them talk me out of that. So it uh, I think here, I think I started this one. Did you listen to the oral argument in the two live crew in the parody case? Did you listen to the Acuff Rose argument? 
I certainly will now. Yeah, you could. You, yeah, I think I started with the statute of Anne and whatever it was, seventeen nineteen. Since, the, but yeah, but listen to the arguments. And you know, next month the Supreme Court is going to have some arguments that are going to be telephonic and they're going to be public. Everybody can listen to them. So it it it's fun. It's great. It's great. I'm so pleased that you all are in law school and take this seriously enough to think about this and enjoy it because you'll have a wonderful, wonderful life being lawyers. Thank you, Mr. Rogo. Alex and I would like to thank Mr. Bruce Rogo for joining us today. This is Patently Obvious. Climb is by The Ghost in Your Piano. Shipping Lanes is by Chad Crouch. Badness Monstrosity is by The New Monitors, all via thefreemusicarchive.org. South Street Strut is by The Great North Sound Society. For any questions or comments, please reach out to us at ippodcast at gmail.com. 